have a third book coming out that I wrote with Glenn Merzer. He actually wrote the words that are really funny. It's a very funny book about uh, self-care and health care. And I contributed 75 new recipes that are really easy that reflect the way I eat today. So I hope you'll consider checking it out when it comes out next week. If you sign up for my mailing list, there'll be lots of bonuses if you buy it on the day we say. But we have a, a doctor today who also went to culinary school. So we have that in common. I didn't go to medical school, but I did go to culinary school. And he also has a book at, that he's hopefully gonna talk about. It's a kid-friendly approach or to digestion. And it's a very cool book, which I will give you. We can't see it until you, you show up because the way Zoom works is you have to talk. So I'm gonna introduce you now and then I'm gonna shut up. I met this guy through Dr. Will B because I'm hosting a GI Health Summit in the fall. And I said, we need some more really good speakers. And I didn't even know that he was planning based or a chef gave not just one but two of the most extraordinary summit interviews one was a cooking demo his name is dr ed mcdonald welcome to the show i'm so happy to introduce you to the live audience oh thanks for inviting me on it's really an honor and a pr privilege and a pleasure to be here yeah well so i anticipate great things for you once once people find out about you you're not going to even have time to do my shows anymore because you're just i just i you're amazing. I mean, just the stuff that comes out of your mouth and the, the stuff that comes out of your kitchen is your, your passion is so obvious for your, what, you know, what you do, both your, both your endeavors. So how the heck does a doctor end up in culinary school? Yeah. You, you know, I actually wanted to give a, a PowerPoint that kind of, you know, goes over my journey and kind of what I do and why I think food is important as a physician and also why I really want to advocate that more doctors should more, learn more about food so we can have better conversations with our patients and really help people better navigate the the craziness that is a food system that exists nowadays i mean it's it's really crazy and i feel like food is really one of the most powerful ways we can control our health and right now i see so many people suffering from chronic disease and a, a lot of that suffering is not necessary and it can be avoided it can be prevented and it definitely can be decreased but the the way to get there food is part of that journey and i i definitely think we need to have a conversation so that's one of the reasons why i'm so excited to come on your show and and, and talk and i'm always excited to talk to you i feel like you know listener chef, chef aj is amazing so I, I know you guys know that but i've had the opportunity to really talk to her uh just on you know phone conversations and outside of you know the wonderful world of social media and chef aj is just a wonderful person and uh you know there's there's i've met people who have on-screen personalities that are amazing but when you meet them off screen they're just terrible human beings uh she is amazing on screen and off screen she's just as amazing Oh, you're making me blush, but thank you. I feel the same way about you. People are saying they wish you were their doctor and they could technically be your patient, but they would probably have to be in Chicago, right? Uh, well, yeah, ideally, you know, the, I, I need to make some clones of me because like the wait list to get in my clinic nowadays is, is, is crazy. It's like, you know, people call me up like, Ed, I, I tried to get an appointment, but they said the next opening is May. <laughs> I'm like, ah. Oh my goodness, that's incredible! Because you're you're at least double board certified, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. So I'm a nutrition, obesity, gastroenterology. Well, quadruple. I mean, nutrition, obesity, gastroenterology, internal medicine, um, and then I'm with culinary school, and uh, I do a lot of community advocacy and uh, activism around food here in Chicago area. And uh, I actually have my, my little kids book that I want to talk talk about. Uh, it is it's self-published, but I'm proud of it. It's 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 so cute. I know you had my buddy Doctor Will B come on, uh, so this is not 
you know, a, a book like Fiberfield, but for kids, I love it. It's, it's a good book. I'm going to post the link right now to Amazon so people can check it out and I hope they'll yeah, get it. We can definitely talk about it, but I really just want to talk about my journey in terms of like what got me inspired to, to go to culinary school as a physician. And then also, uh, I really want to talk about what the food scene looks like here in Chicago. So when I say the food scene, I don't necessarily mean what amazing restaurants we have. I really want to talk to the listeners about what the average person living in Chicago may be going through when it comes to food. And, uh, you know, I, I do think having a conversation about food insecurity uh, is an important one. And it's one that doesn't really happen, uh, at least not in the world of YouTube and social media as much as it should. But it happens in my clinic all the time. So it's a lot of people out here that are struggling. I feel like uh, that struggle should be uh, within the public's eye. Right. I look forward to hearing your story. Okay. So can I share my screen? And do you sure can. There's a little button on your end that says share screen. Will do. All right. So listeners, if you guys are listening, I hope you are. Whenever I give a talk, I don't even like to say lectures and whatnot. I, I like to say I give, I participate in conversations. Okay. So this may be a conversation with some slides, but by all means, uh, all means interrupt, ask questions. So I think Chef AJ is going to be monitored for questions. Uh, you can stop me at any point, okay? I won't take any offense, and I actually like to hear some feedback and some audience participation. And Chef AJ, obviously, this is really a conversation. So anytime you have a question, anytime you want to say anything, I want you to jump in there and keep the conversation going, okay? Okay, just a couple of people are saying your volume is lower than mine. So if there's anything you can do to bump it up a little bit, that would be great. Yeah, is this better? Yeah, maybe just be closer to the mic. Perfect. Okay, yeah, that's good. Uh, I'm actually rush to get home and I have my little podcasting set up and everything. So uh, let me share my screen here. It's a good look. I'm going to post. All right. Can you do that? Can you see that? Absolutely. All right. So I'm going to tell a story about why I went to culinary school. And it really started with asking a patient this question. Why are you eating hot dogs every single day? Uh, which is a lot. But within that question, I had to learn about food deserts, food swamps, and uh, some health disparities in the city of Chicago. Um, so as you know, I'm a chef. I went to culinary school. I, did a, uh, I was at Kendall College, got certified. Kendall College at that time was a top 10 culinary school paid for it out of pocket. I had to work extra shifts in the hospital. I was, uh, I just finished my internal medicine residency and I was doing my fellowship in nutrition at that time. And I'm not independently wealthy. So I didn't just, you know, have money to throw around. I had to, you know, work harder just to pay for my tuition. And I believe tuition was at that time, maybe like $15,000 and $15,000 is a lot. And when you do, you don't have anything. Uh, but I realized through working extra shifts in a hospital, Within a year, I was able to come up with $15,000 to pay that tuition so I wouldn't have to get any student loans, okay? That's, that's more than my car cost. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a lot of money. And thankfully, I was in a position to, to generate that money without having to do any student loans. But, you know, honestly, some of these other culinary schools, that was the, one of the cheaper culinary schools. So um, I was looking at, I think, the CIA. I'm like, oh, maybe I want to go to New York. And the CIA, it cost almost as much as medical school. It was, it was super duper expensive. Um, so, you know, the culinary training, I, I definitely, if, for people who are interested in culinary training, look at your local community colleges. 
uh, you can probably get some really good skills at some of your local community colleges if they have a community program. Uh, and, and a lot of those are going to be a lot cheaper. All right. So when people ask me about why I became a chef as a doctor, I, I tell people a couple different stories. I mean, one, I was uh, fortunate enough to be raised in a household with matriarchs that love to cook. So my, uh, my mother, she's an excellent cook. My grandmother, uh, both my grandmothers are great cooks. And so they, they taught me the joy of cooking at an early age. And it's something that I fell in love with. And, and, and even when I was younger, my mother, she had some medical issues. So sometimes she would be hospitalized. And I was uh, forced to learn how to cook on my own. Um, so my grandmother gave me my first cookbook when I was about 10 years old. She gave me the joy of cooking. Till this day, I remember my first recipe. Uh, so my family was not plant-based or anything at that time. So my first recipe uh, wasn't necessarily a healthy recipe, but it was the first time that I realized that if I looked at a book, I could put some, put some stuff together and actually make something tasty. So I made spaghetti with meatballs. Uh, I remember my mom was in the hospital. My dad was at work and I'm trying to figure out how to cook dinner. And this is, you know, back in the, the, the 80s. And so, you know, you didn't necessarily have to have babysitters running around all the time. I think I was like maybe 10 years old. So I looked in the refrigerator, saw that we had, uh, I believe, some ground beef or ground turkey, saw that we had some, some breadcrumbs and some canned tomatoes and some Italian seasoning and some eggs. I looked in that cookbook and I'm like, you know what? I can make spaghetti with meatballs. And so put it together, made my first spaghetti and meatballs. And when my dad came home from work, we had dinner on the table um, and I was excited and I was cooking ever since then. Fast forward some years, I ended up working in restaurants, and I even uh, became a manager at McDonald's. And anybody out there, if you've worked fast food, you know how hard it is to work at some of these fast food restaurants. Like, that fast food lifestyle, that's a tough job. Chef AJ, have you worked fast food? I haven't worked fast food, but it's not easy working in a restaurant. I was a pastry chef. Yeah, so it is, it is not easy. Um, and, you know, interacting with the public. So I was 16 working at my first McDonald's and eventually, so McDonald's and some of the fast food places, they, uh, they unfortunately believe in gender roles a lot. Uh, so what would happen at the fast food places, at least uh, in the 90s when I was younger, they would put all the men in the kitchen. Uh, so all the men worked in the kitchen and then only women worked on the front lines uh, as far as taking orders and stuff like that. It was the, the most sexist environment ever. But for whatever reason, uh, they allowed me to work both places. So I worked the front lines and I also uh, worked in the kitchen. And then eventually I became a manager. So I'm 16 years old. They had me managing, uh, managing the McDonald's. And you should never make a 16-year-old a manager of anything. Like, it's just totally irresponsible for them to do that. But they did it. And I was responsible. Uh, so the reason why they made me a manager, I, I wasn't stealing. I wasn't doing anything like that. But I was still 16. So my McDonald's. Because of my love of cooking, I started making stuff that wasn't on McDonald's menu. Uh, so you, my, you can come to my McDonald's and get frittatas, you can get omelets, you can get, I'm taking whatever ingredients we had in the kitchen, I'm just making up stuff. And it got to the point where my McDonald's had a secret menu, which is totally, totally inappropriate. But I'm 16, I don't know better. Like, I'm, I'm just like, okay, people are happy and we're using ingredients that we have, we might as well get creative. So police officers, they would come in and ask for stuff on my secret menu. And I didn't really realize the power of food until I got pulled over by one of those police officers. 
So I got pulled over at the tender age of 16. And, you know, that is a very stressful experience. And I hear the police officer on the, 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 over the, the loud horn, the loudspeaker saying, hey, you know, get out the car, blah, 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 blah. So I get out the car. And the next thing you know, I hear, hey, that's that guy from McDonald's who makes the omelets. And they speed off. And I'm sitting here, I'm standing there kind of, you know, shocked, like, man, I need to make more omelets. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so that's when I really got interested in, in cooking. And subsequently, I worked in some restaurants when I was in college and whatnot. But the joy of cooking always stayed with me. And before I went to start in medical school, I remember going up to my father. I'm like, Dad, I want to, you know, delay medical school for a year and go to culinary school. My dad you know, very salt of earth type of guy. He was like, son, you know, you're crazy. Like, what are you trying to do, man? Like, do you want to be a chef? Do you want to be a doctor? I'm like, dad, I want to do both. I feel like there's a way I could pull both off. And, and plus, I love to cook. I always wanted to just become a better cook. And my dad was just like, son, just go to medical school. So went to medical school and I still wanted to figure out a way to, to figure out how to finally go to culinary school. And I didn't really get the, 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 the motivation or inspiration until I finished, finished my medical school and I uh, started residency and I took care of my first patient in clinic. I was at the Jesse Brown VA in Chicago and I had my first clinic patient. And I want to use his story to talk about not only my journey, but also some uh, health issues in Chicago. Okay. So this patient, he was 59 years old. He was a Vietnam veteran. And um, at that time, you know, the Vietnam veterans were, you know, still under the age of 60. Uh, he was divorced. He was underemployed. He couldn't cook. Um, he also had some chronic diseases. And these chronic diseases are very common in America. So he had diabetes. He had high blood pressure. He had fatty liver disease. He had, uh, he was a little bit overweight. And he also had a stroke in the past, which we call a CVA. So for him, you know, I learned about diabetes. I learned about all this stuff in medical school. But what they did not teach us in medical school is the role that food plays in some of these conditions and even how to manage some of these conditions with food. So I asked him one of the most powerful questions that any doctor could ask anybody, in my opinion, in my humble opinion. I asked him, what do you eat? Now, I looked throughout his chart. He had plenty of doctors before me. I was not the first doctor to take care of him, but I was the first person to actually ask him this question and document the answer to the question. So he's never seen a dietitian before this. This man has diabetes, has high blood pressure, but uh, since dietitians are not readily available depending on your insurance and he's at the VA system, he didn't see anyone. So uh, all the doctors before me, instead of asking him this question, every time he came in with his blood pressure up or his blood sugar elevated, they would just increase his medications. They would add more blood pressure medication, increase insulin. Uh, you know, if he was on lisinopril, they would add hydrochlorothiazide. If he's on metoprolol, they would add some more lisinopril. I mean, it was just, it was crazy. So I asked him this question, what do you eat? And his response was hot dogs. And I'm like, okay. Okay, so what do you eat for breakfast? And, you know, he kind of gets a little bit agitated because he's repeating himself, but he says hot dogs. And I'm like, eh, what do you eat for lunch? And he's getting a little bit more agitated. He says hot dogs again. And I knew I had to ask him what he ate for dinner. I knew I had to. So I said, what do you eat for dinner? And at this point, he's getting really agitated, and he's about to walk out the door. And he finally yells hot dogs. So on the inside, 
I felt like this picture. I mean, I, I was uh, shocked that he was just eating hot dogs every single day. Now, I'm a professional. I can't, you know, judge anybody for the foods that they're eating. Uh, but I, I felt uh, shocked because I knew that no one asked this man uh, before me about what he was eating. And everyone was just giving him more blood pressure medications when he was just eating hot dogs every day. Uh, so we, we had to do something different. So I started giving him some recipes. Uh, but in order to really figure out why he was eating hot dogs, it wasn't just giving him some recipes. I really had to have a glimpse into his world and really understand what was going on in his life that put him in a, a position where he's doing hot dogs every day for every meal. So he told me he couldn't cook. He told me he likes hot dogs. And he also told me that he doesn't have any money and there's no grocery stores in his neighborhood. Um, so I felt like I was a medical student again because in medical school, I mean, they, they taught me a lot about what's going, what can go wrong with the body, uh, how to treat it, but they didn't teach me about what to do when there's no grocery stores in the neighborhood or what to do when someone can't cook or when so what to do when someone doesn't have any money. But all those things are actually affecting the conditions that I'm trying to treat. So I had to figure this stuff out on my own. Uh, so the first thing I had to learn about was processed foods and how dangerous processed foods can be. So hot dogs, that is the probably the ultimate example of a meat-based processed food. Uh, it's, it's rich in a bunch of different nitrites and stuff like that. It's like, who knows what is actually in a hot dog? Uh, so he was doing processed foods because he couldn't cook, cook. He liked hot dogs. They were cheap and they were easy. And for him, he's not alone in having those reasons as to why he was doing the ultra-processed foods. So there was a good study uh, based upon a market research firm, firm where they asked a lot of people uh, the reasons why they were doing these processed foods. So 43% said they were affordable, 41% said they were easy, 20% said they tasted good, another 61% said they were convenient, which makes sense. I mean, processed foods are everywhere. They're easy to get. Um, but what's interesting, he wasn't alone in terms of the amount of calories that were coming from his processed food. So even though it seems obvious because he was just doing hot dogs, but for the average American, a lot of our calories are still coming from ultra-processed foods. Uh, we're just doing a, a larger variety, a wider variety than just hot dogs. But there was a good study that found that for the average American, 60% of our calories come from ultra-processed foods. Uh, so even though he was just doing eating hot dogs, but you know, there's a lot of people that are eating hot dogs plus a whole lot of other stuff that are still ultra-processed in America. Um, which is different than other countries. Uh, so what's interesting, if you look at a big study that happened in France, where they looked at the percentage of calories that people in France were eating from ultra-processed foods, they found it was only 36%. Now, in the nutrition literature, there's this whole concept of the French paradox, okay? So the French paradox is basically, you know, why is it that the French are eating pastries and, you know, doing baguettes and stuff like that and, and drinking red wine. But why is it that they're doing those type of foods, but they don't have the same rates of heart disease and diabetes that we have here in the United States? So people, you know, made it seem, make it seem like it's a mystery, like it's a paradox. But the reality is, to me, it's pretty obvious. Like the French are doing way less processed foods than we are in the United States. Uh, so I don't understand why it's a mystery. When we, we, we've done the studies, we know what the answer is. Um, so for the sake of argument, you know, what are the different types of food processing? And it's good to know. I feel like 
this is the average stuff that we should learn in high school. We should learn about the foods that we're eating and the categories in which they fall under. Uh, and we, we definitely should learn this in medical school, but we do not. I mean, my medical students, since I'm in charge of their nutrition education and giving lectures, they, they learn this stuff, but uh, not everyone has the luxury of going to University of Chicago where I teach. So there are four categories of food proce processing, and we call this the NOVA classification. So you have your unprocessed foods, you have your processed culinary ingredients, and you have your processed foods, which are like canned goods and dried fruits. Uh, so the processed foods, they actually kind of resemble regular foods or natural foods. Uh, but then you have your ultra processed foods, which are basically like soft drinks and, you know, packaged snacks. And so, you know, for instance, grape soda has very little to do with the grape. Uh, whereas a raisin, I mean, a raisin is basically a dried grape. And depending on where you go, they may add a little bit of sugar or something to it. But for the most part, it is a processed food as opposed to an ultra processed food because it resembles the grape. You can draw a line between the raisin and, and the grape that makes sense. But grape soda, again, I don't, I don't even know if there's any real grape in grape soda. Uh, it may be just grape flavoring and who knows where the grape flavoring comes from. But by definition, your ultra processed foods are going to have industrialized ingredients that you can't find at a grocery store. So this is like you have to go to a chemistry lab or order some of the stuff on, you know, industrial websites to actually get access to some of the stuff. So, again, some of these processed snacks that everybody loves, like, you know, your favorite cola. I don't want to say any names because I don't need any big companies coming after me or Chef AJ. Uh, but your favorite pop, like I, I went to culinary school. I can't come home and just make pop. Like, I don't know, you know, what would be involved in that or some of the, even some of the favorite pack, your favorite packaged snacks. Like I can do bacon and pastry, but I can't just make, you know, some of the stuff that you see at the gas station. So these are all examples of processed foods. Uh, now, should we care about food processing? Yes, definitely. Uh, the average person out here, you should definitely care about whether or not you're eating a lot of ultra processed foods. And there's a lot of, a lot of studies that indicate why. Okay. So, uh, you know, I don't want to get too in-depth as far as science, but we're going we're gonna to try and we're going to keep it simple. And I want people to ask questions because I, I think these are important concepts that the average person should know. So there was a good study that looked at how processed foods uh, affect our appetite, okay? So they were trying to see if these ultra-processed foods actually make us eat more. Uh, I have a weight management clinic, so part of my advice to my patients is, not only eating more fruits and vegetables and maybe even trying to transition to a plant-based diet, but ultimately uh, we have to figure out ways to not do ultra processed foods. And this is one of the reasons, okay? So in this study, they gave people two weeks of ultra processed foods and two weeks of unprocessed foods, okay? And they matched the ultra processed foods and unprocessed foods in terms of calories. They were the same amount of calories. Um, but they let people snack on however much they wanted to. So you had your standard meals that were matched, and you can do whatever you want to do for snacks. So if you were on the unprocessed phase of the study, you just had to do unprocessed snacks. If you were in the ultra-processed phase of the study, you got to do ultra-processed snacks. Um, but they also checked their weight throughout the process, and they also checked different hormones that can affect how hungry we are. So there's a hormone that's called ghrelin, that when it's increased, it can make us feel really hungry. 
So again, they match the meals perfectly, okay? So the ultra-processed foods and the unprocessed foods, they had the same amount of calories, the same nutrients, the same sugar, sodium, and fiber. They tried to make them the same as possible, uh, with the exception of the food processing. Uh, and what they found was during the two weeks of ultra-processed, eating ultra-processed foods, the average person in the study ate 508 calories extra per day, like 508 calories. That's a lot of calories. So, I mean, a lot of people say, well, maybe you should have like 2000 calories per day or 1500 to 2000 calories, but 500 calories, uh, extra, this is beyond the meals. Uh, and this is beyond what they were doing uh, on the unprocessed foods. And what they also found that during the two weeks of eating the ultra processed foods, everyone gained at least two pounds. Uh, so two pounds, two weeks. Imagine if that's just two pounds, two weeks. Okay. Uh, what if people did ultra processed foods for 52 weeks and gained those two pounds? Uh, so you can see how this ultra processed food diet can potentially uh, lead to some weight gain. Now, what's interesting, they checked hormone levels uh, that affect hunger, okay? So you would think when you were eating more calories on this ultra-processed food diet, you would feel less hungry, right? Because you're taking in more calories. But what they found was when they were doing the ultra-processed food diet, their ghrelin levels, the hunger hormone, was actually higher. Uh, so people were hungrier, even though they were eating more calories. And when they did the unprocessed food diet, uh, which is, again, more fruits and vegetables and natural stuff, uh, the hunger hormones were lower. So people ate less calories, they were healthier, and they felt more full. Um, so to me, this is one of the most important studies out there that doesn't really get the attention that it deserves. Uh, another study uh, actually showed that eating greater than four servings per day of ultra-processed foods is actually increased, associated with increased risk of mortality. So it potentially can take some years off our life. Uh, just four servings. Uh, four servings per day was associated with a 62% increase in mortality. Um, so it, it's one of the reasons why I definitely, I mean, even though I'm an advocate for plant-based diets, uh, for people who are not willing or ready to trans transition to a plant-based diet or you know, eat more fruits and vegetables, but, you know, still people are trying to figure out ways to be healthier. One, one simple way is cutting out the ultra processed foods, in my humble opinion. Uh, so we know that in the United States, about 650,000 people die uh, per year from diet related diseases. Uh, so this is, uh, it is a, our nutrition plays a role, our diet plays a role, and it definitely has to be um, part of the conversation in terms of why are we getting sick and also what, how can we become healthier? Uh, so most of those deaths were due to what's known as non-communicable diseases. And so these are diseases that you can't pass on from person to person, like an infection. Uh, so, you know, COVID is a communicable diseases. These are non-communicable diseases. So my patient, he had diabetes, he had high blood pressure, he had fatty liver disease. Uh, he also had some, uh, issues with excess weight and he had a stroke. Um, so we know that some of these conditions actually have higher rates in African-Americans, uh, specifically obesity, high blood pressure, and diabetes, and a stroke. Now, I had to figure out how to navigate some of these issues to actually help them. And, uh, you know, what's interesting, uh, when I was a medical student, everyone would come in and give these lectures and say, well, you know, there's different rates because people are eating differently, and it's all because of diet. And, you know, that's a, a good question. Has anyone studied this? 
uh, like how different are people really eating? Uh, especially when I just show that 60% of calories for the average Americans coming from ultra processed foods. So what's interesting in that same study, they looked at the percentages that came from uh, different races and different ethnic groups in terms of, you know, were one group eating healthier than another. Uh, what's interesting when they looked at African Americans and uh, some of the white participants in the study, they found there was no difference. Uh, both groups, 60% of the calories are coming from ultra processed foods. So uh, the standard American diet is just not healthy. It's just not. And I, I feel like in America, uh, we all have a, a high likelihood of just participating in this processed standard American diet, regardless of uh, your race, creed, or color. Now, the only thing, uh, the only groups that actually ate less ultra processed foods were groups that were closer to immigration. So uh, a lot of the Latino participants and the Asian participants ate significantly less, especially if they were either immigrant or children of immigrants, uh, which is very interesting. So uh, in my city in Chicago, where you know I have my weight management clinic and I do a lot of community outreach, I'd be aware of like how people are eating in Chicago, uh, because these are the obstacles that I have to help people navigate. And when I come up with different community uh, interventions and programs, like I have to, when I talk to the aldermen and I talk to people as to why we should have more uh, cooking demonstrations and educational activities for at the community level, uh, and if, especially if I'm asking them for their support, I have to show them data like this. So in Chicago, uh, there is a, a difference. Uh, so in Chicago specifically, uh, African-Americans, Latinos are doing a little bit more sugary beverages than other groups. What about fruits and veggies? Okay. So this is for you, Chef AJ. I know you are a big time vegetable advocate. Uh, and this is also one of the reasons why your work is so important. Okay. Um, so based upon a recent study that looked at how many Americans are actually eating fruits and vegetables, uh, meeting guidelines, which is really like two servings of uh, fruits or vegetables per day. So it's not a whole lot, okay? Only about 9.3% of Americans meet guidelines for vegetable intake. Um, so that's not a lot of people. And if we are trying to be healthier as a population, we have to change that. I know years ago when um, Barack Obama was president and everyone was getting excited about health reform, I thought health reform was actually going to include uh, making it easier to eat healthy. And like that wasn't on the table. I mean, I get it. I want people to have insurance and everything. But when I think of health reform, my concept of reform and health is so beyond just health insurance. Uh, it is like we need food insurance. I want people to be able to get access to good food. Uh, you need gym insurance. I want people to actually be able to exercise uh, as opposed to just, you know, just coming to the hospital uh, because, you know, I, I think the hospital, we've done a good job with managing disease. But in terms of curing stuff we, and preventing it, we have a little ways to go. So what's interesting about this study, uh, there was no significant difference in terms of uh, race and ethnicity. So regardless if you're white, black or whatever, uh, most people in America are not consuming enough fruits and vegetables, period. Uh, so another thing that his, his story, uh, I had to figure out how to navigate in order to help him out as a physician, he told me he had no money. And uh, to me, no money as it applies to food means food insecurity which is a big issue. Um, it's, a, it's a really big issue, uh, primarily because we know that food insecurity is associated with higher rates of processed food consumption. 
so for me as a physician, I have to figure out ways to address food insecurity, especially if I see a lot of patients who have food insecurity and I'm trying to figure out ways to get them to eat healthier. So I have to make it easy. Um, and what's interesting, a lot of people who are poor, uh, especially people who live in poor urban areas, you actually may pay more money for your groceries um, because you're shopping at convenience stores. So there's a good study that showed that people who predominantly shop at convenience stores actually pay 25 to 50% more for food. And I don't know if you've been to any of these convenience stores, but they're expensive. It's like going to Whole Foods minus the Whole Foods. <laughs> it's crazy. And another thing that's interesting about food insecurity you know, this is an issue that affects everybody. And I know when we talk about health disparities, you know, oftentimes we, we focus on underrepresented minorities, but this is, this is an American problem. Uh, half the people uh, who are food insecure are white. And uh, the rates are about two times higher in black and Hispanic households, but there's a lot of Americans out there who just don't have access to food. And it, what, what hurts me, I, you know, with this whole COVID situation, I don't know if you heard Chef AJ about how a lot of people, a lot of farms just didn't know what to do with their fruits and vegetables since all the, the restaurants were shut down. So everything was just wasted. Uh, that is, that, that, hearing that broke my heart uh, because I have patients who literally struggle to get food and hearing how we had food just thrown away in our country uh, that we could have at least given to some of the food pantries or figured out something to do with it as opposed to just throwing it away. It's so sad. And, and there's really just no good argument for it because we have great infrastructure. Uh, you know, we have roads, we have trucks, and we also have corporations that know how to ship things from all over the country. I mean, Amazon, Walmart, their supply chain is amazing. And I feel like with some some strategy, we probably could have figured out how to put some of that food to good use. Um, so another issue, no grocery stores. Like, how do you address not having grocery stores? Um, that's something that you don't learn in medical schools. So he was living in the food desert. Uh, he lived in the Inglewood neighborhood. And Inglewood, I mean, it's a, unfortunate, unfortunately, there's a lot of people struggling in Inglewood. Uh, so it's on the south side of Chicago. It's uh, predominantly African American, and uh, average income per year is a little bit less than twenty thousand dollars. And about thirty-five to fifty-seven percent of the people in the pop in that neighborhood have food insecurity. And uh, this neighborhood is close to my hospital. It's literally right across the expressway from the hospital. And my hospital is in the same neighborhood in which Barack Obama lived. So you have literally the home of the president. But then across the expressway, you have 57% of the people with food insecurity, which is crazy when you think about it. Uh, but it's, it's almost like a tale of two cities. So Lakeview's neighborhood on the north side, uh, not too far from where the Cubs play. It's not Wrigleyville, uh, but it's close to Wrigleyville. And Inglewood, again, on the south side. So when you look at uh, deaths associated with diabetes, very different neighborhoods. Okay, even though these neighborhoods are only eight miles apart, uh, but within that eight miles, when it comes to diabetes, they're vastly different. All right, so in Inglewood, uh, per 100,000 people, about 101 people die from diabetes. In Lakeview, up on the north side, only 35. And I would say that 35 is too much. That 35 should not be the goal. Like, we should do better uh, than that 35, but we should definitely do better than 101. So Inglewood also is a food desert. Uh, and Chicago's food deserts are mostly African-American neighborhoods. Uh, so for me, I'm at the University of Chicago. I'm on the south side. A lot of my patients come from 
all different parts of the city and suburbs, Indiana, et cetera. But a lot of people are coming from the south side of Chicago where we're located. So how do I, as a, a food oriented doctor uh, who wants to see more people eating you know, fruits and vegetables, how do I address the food desert issues? Uh, well, first you gotta learn about food deserts. So the term food desert uh, did not originate in the United States. It actually came from Scotland. Okay, so it was first used in Scotland when uh, the public health department in Scotland, they were trying to figure out why people who were living in the tenements weren't living as long or why they were developing more diabetes and chronic diseases compared to other groups who weren't living in the tenements. And the tenements are basically their word for public housing. Okay, Uh, so what they found was in these tenements or areas where there's public housing, uh, there just weren't a lot of grocery stores. And people, as a result, were just eating a whole bunch of junk food and processed foods from convenience stores. So they, in Scotland, came up with this term, food deserts. Now, in the United States, we have our own specific diet definition. And I, and I like this definition because it pays respect to a lot of folks who live in rural America. Uh, so oftentimes, the food desert terms, people only think about food deserts as they apply to urban communities. It's not true, and it's not fair. There's a lot of folks who live you know, in rural America that technically live in food deserts. So USDA says food desert is at least 100 households more than half a mile from the nearest supermarket with no access to a vehicle. So transportation is important. And for rural Americans, uh, a food desert is at least a neighborhood with at least 500 people, or 33% of the population that live more than 20 miles from the nearest supermarket. Okay, so you can live on a farm, but if your farm is just growing corn and there's nothing else, like, and there's no supermarkets uh, except for the market that's 20 miles down the road, you live in a food desert. Uh, so the types of neighborhoods uh, and neighborhood stores have health implications. Okay, so a lot of neighborhoods really just have convenience stores uh, as opposed to supermarkets. So there's a good study that actually showed that if you have a supermarket in your neighborhood, uh, you're, the people who live in that neighborhood have a lower prevalence or a lower risk of uh, d- developing, uh, gaining weight. And so having obesity or uh, being, uh, having overweight. Uh, so these supermarkets are important and there's a lot of neighborhoods where they just don't have supermarkets. Uh, and most people are getting groceries and stuff like that from gas stations and convenience stores. And, and some people are, you know, really just going to fast food restaurants. Uh, so, you know, for me as a physician and as uh, someone who does a lot of community work regarding food, you know, the question I always ask myself, well, should we just focus on, you know, getting more grocery stores? Is that going to be the solution to, to the problem? Uh, is that going to be what it takes to get people to eat healthier? Uh, well, it's, it's, it's complicated. So they did a study here in Chicago where they, they looked to answer that question and they came up with this food balance score. Okay. So the food balance score is basically the relative distance of grocery stores to fast food, okay? So if you had a high score, that means your neighborhood was out of balance. And the high score means that the fast food restaurants were closer to you than grocery stores were. A low score means your neighborhood has a healthy balance, okay? And that means that the healthy grocery stores and supermarkets, uh, they were closer to you than the fast food restaurants were, okay? So they looked to see if this food balance score had anything to do with health outcomes. And they specifically looked at cancer and cardiovascular disease. And they looked at years of potential life loss uh, by having uh, living in an area that's 
out of balance when it comes to food, okay? So the neighborhoods that had the highest score, which were the worst, that had, you know, they were most out of balance in terms of having a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of fast foods as opposed to supermarkets, they had higher rates of cancer in that neighborhood. So they also had higher rates of heart disease in those neighborhoods. So, you know, some of these neighborhoods that we call food deserts, they're not really food deserts, they're really food swamps because uh, there's plenty of food in those neighborhoods. It's just not necessarily healthy food. So uh, the term food swamp actually means an area in which large relative amounts of energy dense foods inundate or overwhelm healthy food options. So Englewood definitely is a food swamp. And I don't know if anyone out there has driven through you know, some of these urban communities, like you see plenty of restaurants. You can't go more than two blocks without seeing a, you know, a fast food place or a fried food place. So they're out there. It's just not enough healthy foods to counteract the unhealthy foods. Um, so he can't cook. Uh, how do you address not being able to cook? Again, went to medical school. There was no classes in my medical school. I went to Northwestern. Northwestern, I, was a great medical school. This is top notch, one of the best medical schools in the country, but I didn't have any classes on, you know, how do you interact with people who can't cook? How do you advise people who can't cook? Uh, so I had to figure that out. And in order to figure that out, you have to do some research. You have to ask questions, look up some literature. Uh, okay, so. um, yeah, excuse me for interrupting, but you said at the beginning, you, you didn't mind. And I don't yeah. wanna miss this question. And Sherry yeah. says, so what is the solution to these food deserts? Yeah, what is the solution to the food deserts? So it's a, a it has to be a, a multifaceted solution. So one part is you need to, you definitely need to have grocery stores, uh, but it's not just having grocery stores. Uh, we have to, one, uh, teach cooking classes and we have to improve some of the knowledge associated with the actual food in the grocery stores. We have to figure out ways to limit access to some of the unhealthy foods and, and that requires a lot of education and community intervention. Um, we have to look at the cost within the grocery store. So having a whole bunch of grocery stores, but if people can't afford the actual food in the grocery store, uh, it's not, not helpful. Uh, so we have to figure out how to make some of the food a little bit cheaper, specifically the healthy food. And there's ways to do that. So every year or every couple of years, the government, uh, we have what's known as the farm bill. And the farm bill decides, you know, which products and which farmers and whatnot get subsidies. Uh, so there's a way where we can figure out how to subsidize some of the healthier options and make it a little bit cheaper uh, in order to give people who may not necessarily have as much money access to some of the healthier stuff. Uh, but that is a great question to ever answer that. And it is, the answer is very complicated, but I do feel like that is a question that's answerable. It's just, it's not going to be one answer or one solution. It's going to be multiple solutions that have to uh, happen at the same time. And these are some of the things that I'm actively trying to work on here in Chicago. Um, so it's one of the reasons why I teach culinary classes. It's one of the reasons why I interact with my aldermen and local politicians to figure out how do we get more grocery stores in neighborhoods. It's one of the reasons why I go to those grocery stores and do grocery store tours as a trained chef, as a physician, because again, I think we have to really reach people on multiple different levels if we're trying to really figure, figure out how to get some of these solutions. And then I'm also doing some research. Uh, so I'm working with a couple different organizations that provide culinary classes. And we're actually trying to study how well uh, these classes and actually food delivery, how well you know, do they function as a potential solution. Um, so it's a work in progress. 
Uh, now, what's interesting, men uh, over the past, you know, 40, 50 years or so, we've, we've improved a little bit when it comes to cooking. Uh, so my patient, he wasn't cooking and he was he, part of that generation of men that allowed toxic masculinity to rob them from the joy of cooking. Okay, so there's a lot of guys out there, you know, my father's one of them, God bless him, uh, who just like stepping in the kitchen is just like, oh, men shouldn't be in the kitchen, man. It's, you know, what are you doing? Um, so there's a whole genera- generation that have allowed gender roles to rob them of the joy of cooking, uh, which for me, it's sad because I love cooking. Like, I love it. And I know a lot of guys who do love it. Um, but in 1965, there wasn't a lot of men, uh, weren't a lot of men who were actually cooking. So 1965, only about 29% of men were cooking. Now, 2008, that increased, increased modestly to, to 42%, okay? Uh, we still have a little ways to go, but 42% is better than 29%. I mean, I don't, wanna, I don't want all of us men to pat ourselves on the back and say that, okay, we made it. No, we, we, we've improved but we still have to do a little bit more cooking than what we're actually doing. And in 1965, men on average only spent about 37 minutes per day in the kitchen, and that increased to 45 minutes per day. So 37, 45 minutes per day. I mean, not really a big difference, but at least people are in there doing something more than just microwaving or boiling hot dogs. Um, So the number for women, uh, it actually decreased. And, you know, before I get into this, so I'm just sharing the data. Like, I'm not making any political statements. I don't want to end up on Twitter as a hashtag. Uh, I am, I'm a, I'm a feminist. I'm a womanist. Um, but I'm also a cooking advocate, okay? Uh, so from 1965 to 2008, the percentage of women who cooked went from 92% to 65%. And there's a lot of reasons for that, a lot of good reasons as to why those numbers have shifted. Okay, so what we're talking about is access to better jobs, uh, access to higher education, and a decrease, not elimination of, you know, gender roles and some of the toxic stuff going on, but a decrease. Uh, we still have a, a long way to go as far as uh, wage equality and everything. But um, so I, I, I understand these numbers, okay? But again, I think one of the most powerful ways or the, one of the best ways we can control our health is controlling our food. And in order to control your food, uh, cooking plays a role in that process. And if you're not cooking, that means you're giving the control up to somebody else. So for my patient, I gave him recipes, okay? So he was at the VA clinic. I literally wrote down, I asked him, I'm like, look, sir, you, you, you can't live off hot dogs every day um, for years by itself and expect to live a long, healthy life. Like, it just doesn't work that way. So I wrote down a napkin. I wrote down, I asked him, like, look, man, what, what's your, your favorite vegetable? And he said broccoli. I'm like, okay, can you get broccoli? He was like, yeah, I can get broccoli. So I wrote down a recipe on how to roast broccoli. Just something simple, you know, nothing, nothing too crazy, you know, put the oven... 425, 450 or so, you know, put a, a little bit of olive oil on there, um, a little bit of salt, not too much, a little bit of pepper, not too much. Let it roast 15, 20 minutes, you know, get a little char, but don't burn it. Um, and I wrote it down on a napkin and I saw him maybe three months later. So he comes back to see me. He's like 25, 30 pounds down, blood pressure is a little bit low. And I was worried about him. I'm like, man, you know, he lost all this weight all of a sudden. Did I miss something? Does he does he have cancer? Do I have to do a colonoscopy or, you know, check his prostate or something? Like, what happened? And again, I asked him that powerful question. I'm like, what have you been eating? 
And he said, Doc, you know, you gave me that recipe for the roasted vegetables. And I just been doing roasted vegetables every day, every meal for the past three months. And he lost all this weight and his blood pressure got a little bit. It seems like this guy is, I would love to meet this guy because it seems like whatever he eats, he just only eats that. I mean, he, he was a veteran. I don't know. He was like taking orders. Um, But he, he, we had to add some variety to his diet and he eventually transitioned to a plant-based diet and he went on to lose more weight. And I was able to get him off of a lot of the medications he was on and he got off insulin and, um, under my care, we didn't completely eliminate his diabetes, but we definitely got him off insulin and we got him where everything was well controlled. Uh, so he made a dramatic improvement. And and what I saw that roasted broccoli and some of the other vegetables that he was eating, it was more effective uh, than a lot of the medications that he was getting for years before. I mean, this is the first time he lost weight and the first time everything got better. So that was the, the first time I really was impressed with the power of food. And that, if anything, outside of my own love of cooking and my own desire to just become a, you know, a, a chef, that was the main reason as to why I went to culinary school. And to address some of the food insecurity issues, I hooked them up with the Greater Food Depository here in Chicago, which is one of our, our large food banks. And uh, at that time, that food bank really had a lot of processed food itself. Uh, so I had to figure out how to get them more fruits and vegetables. And I had them going to the 61st Street Farmer's Market, uh, which is a farmer's market here on the south side that actually takes food stamps. And there's been a lot of activism uh, here in Chicago and Illinois to get the, uh, not only to have farmer's markets take food stamps, but also to get the price of those vegetables subsidized. So the cost is a little bit cheaper. So uh, back to that person's question in terms of what are the solutions, okay? So you know, his story highlights at least three major problems that we have to address when we start thinking about solutions, okay? So we have to talk about availability, we have to talk about access, and we also have to talk about knowledge and behavior, okay? So should we just make food cheaper? Is that the solution? Uh, Part of the solution, and in Illinois, we have this link-up program where, again, it's in farmer's markets, and uh, it allows people to use food stamps and subsidize uh, ways to actually get healthy food at the farmer's markets. And I love it because it actually supports a lot of our farmers. So there's a lot of farmers who need support too. I mean, I've, I've known farmers who actually were on SNAP. Uh, so it's good to see, you know, we're matching, we're supporting our local farmers and we're actually encouraging people to actually think about where the food, their food's coming from and really supporting their local economy. So there's a lot of different benefits in, in many ways, but what I like about the farmer's markets, I love seeing, you know, people come back every weekend and actually get to know their farmers and develop a relationship with the farmers. And another thing that's interesting about uh, this whole SNAP funding, um, it's interesting when we talk about making food cheaper. Um, so there's a lot of people who qualify for uh, food stamps, but they don't want to take advantage of it for a lot of different reasons. I mean, I get it. There's pride, there's, you know, stigma attached and all that stuff. I, I understand those reasons. Um, but when you actually look at studies, uh, what's interesting, there was a study that showed that uh, people who actually had uh, SNAP and were utilizing it uh, composed compared to people who qualified but never used it, uh, there was less depression. So only 6.7% of people were actually using the food stamps had depression, whereas people who weren't but qualified had more depression, about twice as much depression. So another question, should we just add more grocery stores? Is that going to fix the problem? If there's you know, a grocery store in every corner, every block, is that going to make things easier and, and make people healthier? 
It depends. It's complicated. Uh, so in Chicago, we actually increased our supermarkets uh, by 20%, especially over the years 2007 to 2014. So 2007, 2008, that's when uh, we had the housing market crisis and like everything shut down. Like whole neighborhoods just became abandoned when it came to supermarkets. Uh, but slowly things improved. Uh, but here in Chicago, there was a study that found despite those improvements, about half a million people still had persistently low access. And the reasons for that is we put all the grocery stores not in areas that that where they were needed. So all the Trader Joe's that opened up, all the Whole Foods that opened up, like majority of those stores did not open up in low access communities. So another good story to be aware of is uh, the Phil in Philadelphia, there was this Pennsylvania fresh food financing initiative. So they had the same question like, okay, well, let's, let's put some stores and some food deserts to see if it's gonna help people lose weight and improve health outcomes like high blood pressure. And what they found was uh, it didn't improve any behavior as far as eating healthier, uh, nor did it improve obesity, uh, but it did improve perceptions of access to healthy food. Now, some people took this as a reason to not open up stores. They were like, well, you know, this study showed that if you open up a healthy store, um, it's not gonna do anything. And to the listener who asked the question in terms of what the possible solutions are, this just means it's more, it's gonna be, it's gonna require more things than just stores to, 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 to find functional solutions. So in Philadelphia, they opened up the store, uh, but the store, they didn't have any cooking classes. They didn't have any education. They didn't have, um, they didn't talk to the actual community members in terms of what fruits and vegetables people really prefer to like. Uh, so there's definitely some cultural connections with food that, you know, should be, should be accounted for to some degree. But they didn't do any of that. Uh, so that study was not very effective. But that does not mean increasing stores is not effective. You just have to do it in a way uh, in part of a as a part of a global solution as opposed to just one thing by itself. So should we just teach cooking classes? And I, I wish I could say that's the answer. OK, but I know it's more complicated than that. So, um, but I do know cooking classes and cooking education and nutrition knowledge is part of the answer. As a result, I teach cooking classes. And so this is me in Engle Englewood uh, doing a culinary class. I was working with some junior high school kids and we're going over knife skills. Uh, so I got my chef's hat on uh, and they also know I'm a physician. Uh, so I get to talk to them not only about becoming a doctor but also becoming a chef. And I, I, I love you know, just going over basic knife skills and you know, the kids are engaged they they love it and we're we're teaching plant-based healthy eating simple recipes um and i also teach culinary medicine for the medical students so my medical students they have the benefits of actually learning nutrition but they learn it within the context of the kitchen and there's definitely a movement going along going on in the united states called culinary medicine so more and more medical schools are picking up these culinary medicine programs and i am one of the chefs for our culinary medicine program so this is um, one of my cohorts after one of our classes, and it's uh, myself and my buddy, uh, Chef Shawana. So uh, what typically happens is there's a physician and a chef who are mashed up together, and we kind of run the class together. But when the students are with me, they have the benefits of having physicians and basically two chefs, because I'm also a chef. And me and Chef Shawana work together very well. 
Um, now you also have to, you know, go on media and talk about healthy eating and food. Uh, so it's one of the reasons why, again, I, I have the, the privilege of being here talking to you all, but I've gone on television and I've talked about healthy food and calories and processed foods, et cetera, uh, because it's part of, uh, I feel like our responsibility as physicians to actually help educate people. And if you look at the root word of what it means to be a doctor it comes from the Latin word docere, which means to teach. So we are functionally, we should be teachers. And in today's society, you know, there's nothing wrong with teaching on social media and using the media itself. Um, but again, for my cooking classes in my hospital, University of Chicago, I do cooking classes monthly. Uh, so I work with the Comprehensive Care Center and we do cooking classes in the hospital. And I would say maybe, I don't know, 60, 70 people come up to the classes and I just do it in a regular hospital conference room. So there's nothing fancy. I don't have some fancy kitchen that they built for me. I literally, if you go to my office, my office looks like a country kitchen pantry in the hospital. So I have all my equipment and I have, you know, on the wall, you see my degrees on the shelves, you see some books, but then you also see spices. You also see, you know, prep bowls wrapped up and, and, and you know, I keep everything clean and sterile. But it, it's, I, I just grab my little cart where I put all my equipment on there and, and lug it over to a empty conference room have 50, 60, or 70 patients in there, and we do some cooking demonstrations. So this is what it looks like. I think I was doing like a kale, apple, cucumber smoothie or something, just looking at the pictures. And then I also talk about uh, food and nutrition on my website, thedocskitchen.com, which I know I need to update it some more, but uh, it is a work in progress. And not only that, I feel like you have to teach the people who are actually preparing food. So our chefs, I want our chefs to be aware about how food can impact the body. And I want more chefs out there, there to be conscientious about the food they're serving. So I have uh, the, the luxury and privilege to actually be an instructor for nutrition at a culinary school. So Rick Bayless, one of uh, the, the famous notable chefs, not only in the country, but here in Chicago, he has a culinary school and his culinary school uh, predominantly uh, helps underserved kids on the west side of Chicago actually not only go through complete culinary training in an expedited pace, but actually get job placements in a lot of different high-end restaurants here in Chicago. So I'm jealous of a lot of the students that I'm teaching. Like they're ending up at his restaurants at, you know, Alenia and all these top-notch restaurants. Um, but I teach their nutrition classes. So it is it's it's really uh, an honor and a privilege to actually be able to get in the kitchen uh with other chefs and i still use my, my my chef skills but it's also amazing to have the the ability to impact uh, the culinary education for our future chefs so and i keep in contact with a lot of those chefs and i you know see them kind of going up moving up the ranks and working out certain restaurants and i can't wait to the point where yeah, they're owning their own restaurants and I just walk in as the doctor who's like, yeah, you know, I remember uh, you were my little student once upon a time and now you have an amazing restaurant and James Beard Award. Uh, can I get the nice chef's table? <laughs> That's all I, I want. Uh, so to the person who asked the question, I think you have to use all these pieces. And one piece that I, I do want to talk about is uh, we got to start young. So we have to actually educate our kids when it comes to food. Uh, primarily because if you're an adult and you, you know your adult years are the first time when you start thinking about how food can impact your body or how your body processes food, I don't want to say that's too late. It's never too late, but there's no such thing as too early. 
Um, so I think having that conversation earlier can definitely make it easier to transition to a healthier diet when uh, you're older. And it's one of the reasons why I actually wrote a kid's book. So, you know, for me, I, I'm a father of three, I have three kids and I know that my kids, their attention span is like nothing. And like, how do I get them to understand what's going on uh, with the way their body processes food? I'm a gastroenterologist, so I mean, I'm, I'm definitely interested in digestion and whatnot. And I see a lot of patients who, when I try to explain to them uh, digestion and certain concepts that involves their body, even though they're adults, they don't understand basic anatomy and they may not necessarily use uh, correct terminology. Now, obviously, I don't expect anyone to have the same knowledge as a physician. I mean, no one went through, you know, anatomy class and stuff like that. But we should be able to have a basic conversation about our bodies. Um, and, I've, and, and this has nothing to do with level of education. I've seen people who are lawyers with advanced degrees come in and, you know, uh, they use terminology like my boo-boo hurts. <laughs> Um, and, and, and I, I, and I say that not in a way to be judgmental, um, but it, it's hard when you see one physician and you go to see another, and if you want to explain something uh, that's going on, we have to use a language that we all can understand and agree with to some degree. Um, uh, so it's one of the reasons why I wrote a kid's book where we actually talk about, uh, the anatomy of the gastrointestinal tract, but I did it not only to educate, uh, kids, but I did it to also educate some of the parents who should ideally be reading the book with the, the kids. Um, uh, so this is the book here. Can you, can you see me? So do you know where my food goes? Okay. And I, I, I love the book for a lot of different reasons. One, it, you know, it rhymes. Uh, my kids have signed off on it. So it, it, it came about, I, I think I was just making up random rhymes with my little girl uh, in terms of trying to explain digestion to her. So she saw me at home uh, reading what's known as video capsules. So video capsules are uh, actually a tool that we use in the hospital uh, where you swallow a pill that is a capsule that goes through you and takes a, a, creates a video. And we use it to identify if there's any bleeding deep in the small bowel. So she's watching me read one of these and she's asking me what's going on. So I had to try to figure out how to explain everything in a way that she could understood and understand it. And I did it in, in a, a form of rhyme. So this is basically uh, a dad explaining digestion to one of their kids. Um, and it goes over, you know, just basic stuff. It starts off, do you know, you know, do you know where my food goes? Um, so I, I'm proud of the book, uh, even though it's very simple. But I, I like it for a lot of different reasons. I mean, a lot of kids are, are reading it and, and, you know, it's very rewarding when someone sends me a email or a message on social media and they have their kids with a picture of the book and they're like, my kids love it. Uh, it's something about having that, that ability to impact the future generation that, that makes me happy and puts a smile on my face. Uh, what I also like about it, uh, you know, if you noticed, I used... Uh, you know, there's images of African-American dad and their kid. And I, and I did that intentionally. I mean, before all the stuff with George Floyd and everything went down, part of my thought process and also being someone who's been pulled over by, uh, pulled over before, I wanted to figure out a way to kind of humanize uh, black men earlier. Um, and I thought having a kid's book with just friendly faces would um, be potentially a way to do that. And um, so, so it, it serves multiple different purposes. Uh, but it's a book that I'm proud of, and I am trying to get a series going. So, you know, we're, we're working on Do You Know Where My Food Comes From? So I have Do You Know Where My Food Goes? 
but I think it's also important to people to know where the food comes from. Uh, so I want kids to, and I, and I say this based upon experience. So I've gone, you know, to some of these public schools and given some talks and, you know, you ask kids like where the French fries come from and they're like McDonald's. Oh my God. Isn't that funny? I never realized, but that's your last name. Yes. My last name is McDonald. And, you know, there's so many stories being, having a last name McDonald's and working at McDonald's, it is, <laughs> it is just, I, I just, let's just say I got made fun of a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. even by customers. I remember being in drive-thru and I'm like, hey, uh, welcome to McDonald's. This is Ed McDonald. Can I take your order? And like, wait, wait, wait. Your last name is McDonald. <laughs> and then next thing you know, the whole car is laughing. Oh. And I'm sitting here just trying to take the order and they're still laughing. Like, your last name is McDonald. I'm like, I'm a person. I have, I uh, have feelings. They call your dad old McDonald? You see? You see? You're jumping into it. Um, <laughs> No, they do not call my dad old McDonald. Uh, but every generation uh, had their own separate nicknames and everything. Uh, but I, I've heard every McDonald's joke under the sun. Um, but, it, it, you know, I do feel like my fast food experience was one of the most important jobs that I ever had. And I feel like it gave me a sense of responsibility uh, and it really set me up to have the job that I have as far as interacting with the public. So, it, it, you know, if you could uh, stay cool when someone's throwing fries at you and cursing you out and you're not really getting upset and you're just kind of going through the motions, that, that same coolness uh, applies to the hospital. So if you're in the operating room or you're in the, you know, the OR and things, you know, you have to act quickly and make some uh, last minute decision making. It, it's all about staying calm uh, under pressure. And I felt like at McDonald's, that was my first introduction to how to stay calm under pressure. Um, the pressure, the, the cause of the pressure may be a little bit different, but staying calm nonetheless, is it's, it's the same regardless of what's stressing you out potentially. So colonoscopies must be a piece of cake for you now compared to being on the fry service. Well, you know, I would say being a doctor is easier than being a chef. Like working in these restaurants, I don't think people know, especially if you're working under a hardcore head chef, it is, that is a stressful environment. It's, it's super stressful. Um, so I, I definitely hats out to all the chefs out there. You guys are, you know, geniuses. The, the amount of concentration you have to have in the kitchen uh, when you have multiple different orders going, it is, it's juggling a lot. And, you know, the short term memory for the average chef out there, it is, it is a skill to be respected. And we don't, need, we don't talk about how complicated this stuff is, but it is. Uh, so, you know, the, the people out here who are foodies really show some love and appreciation for these chefs out here. And it's, it's also one of the reasons why this whole COVID situation is breaking my heart. And it breaks my heart, not only because, I mean, obviously a lot of people are dying and uh, I'm a gastroenterologist. I mean, I, I see this. So a lot of people, uh, since I specialize in nutrition, clinical nutrition, I'm the person when people are in the ICU uh, with COVID and they can't eat because they're on the ventilator, uh, they call me in to put in the feeding tubes and stuff like that. So I, I know exactly what this virus is doing. Uh, and it, it's sad, obviously, for the, the health impact. But when I think about my friends and just chefs out here who've lost their jobs and closed restaurants and stuff like that, it especially knowing how hard it is to be a chef, how hard it is to open a restaurant, how much dedication you have to have to maintain a restaurant. It is, uh, it's, it's sad. I mean, it's really sad when I see these restaurants, especially restaurants that you know were successful 
uh, restaurants that have been open for years, it's just sad to see them go. Um, because, you know, even though I talk about food as far as its importance when it comes to being healthy, you know, at the end of the day, I feel like food is just important uh, to our experience as people. Uh, it is something that's universally celebrated and it's something that's universally that, that we enjoy. It's part of our culture. It's part of happiness. Um, so to, to see these restaurants get negatively impacted, um, it's, it's really sad. And I, I wish I had better solutions on how to make uh, some of the restaurants safer. But nonetheless, it's something I do think of. And I, I still try to support the restaurants as much as I can. Right. Just want to read a nice comment. Anna says, Dr. McDonald is an incredible man. He is certainly doing amazing work, not only for the community, but for all of mankind. Oh, I, couldn't, oh, I couldn't agree more. She's going to make a brown skin man blush. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Like I'm oh. turning rosy brown. <laughs> oh. Susie says, did he trademark the term male toxicity in a nice way? That might be a term that could kindly be used sometimes to help situations. He seems to be very sensitive to building relationships in work and personal relationships and quite skilled at it. Oh, I appreciate that. Well, you, you know, when I talk to people um, about food and about trauma and about the foods that they eat and, and you know, I see people with irritable bowel syndrome and abdominal pain. Um, there, there, like men, there's a lot of trauma out there that we have contributed to, uh, and there, and it just does not get the attention that it deserves. But when I see regular everyday people come in the clinic, and I ask them, even when it comes to food, like when did you start eating unhealthy? When did you start gaining weight? Oh well, you know, when I was, uh, you know, assaulted, when I was uh, abused by my husband, when, and so these are the stories that I hear. And after hearing these stories, I mean, I feel like anyone with a heart, uh, should definitely just, it, it opens your eyes to the reality that a lot of people are living and it's tough out here. And there is a lot of toxicity and there is a lot of trauma that does not get the attention that it deserves. And, and, and for me, like when I hear how this affects everyday people, now, it's one thing to see it on the news. It's one thing that, you know, read about it in the newspaper, but it's another thing to just hear about it uh, when you're actually talking to a, someone uh, and hear about like, okay, you're doing, you know, processed foods because you're depressed and, you know, the foods make you happy, but why are you depressed? Oh, because, like, you know, I went through this. Um, so it, it's, uh, it's definitely an issue that is close to my heart because, again, I see it. Mm -hmm. If you're done with your slides, maybe take yourself off screen share so we could see you. But if you, I don't, I can't tell if you're at the um, end of your PowerPoint because I'm seeing part of your desktop now. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. Uh, so let yeah. me take myself off screen share. Nice. Do, 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 do. Stop share. There uh, you go. Now you're nice. Uh, now you're bigger. This was wonderful. You're also on the Reclaim Your Health Summit this week. Your interview hasn't come up yet. Yes, I'm on the Reclaim Your Health Summit. Uh, so yeah. that is a with my buddy, Judy Bragman. Uh, so she has a great summit that's going on right now. Uh, I wish I had the links for all that. I, I could probably she, find it. But uh, she's going to be on the show November 22nd. If I knew she had a summit, I would have bumped her up sooner. She could have promoted it. Yeah, it's a really, really good one. Yeah, yeah. So she's great. She's doing a lot of great things. So she's out in, uh, I believe, North Carolina or South Carolina. And she does lifestyle medicine with a focus on plant-based diets. So she started her own clinic. And for the people in that, that was at Carolina area uh, who are interested in plant-based diets, 
she's a good resource to look at. Yeah, she's great. She's great. And you're great. And you're like, boy, you're good. I, I was worried, like with all the doctors that I grew up with plant-based, you know, they're getting older and I'm like, who's going to fill their shoes? Well, it's you. We'll go from McDougal to McDonald. Yeah. Well, you know, your buddy, Terry Mason's one of my mentors. I love him. I, he is one of the people don't know. He's really funny. He doesn't usually be funny when he's presenting, but if, when he's not on, he is one of the funniest people you'll ever meet. Oh, Terry's super funny. Yeah, uh, he, I, I love Terry. Like you, you should travel with Terry. So like, Terry, oh, I have traveled with him and he told me the story. Well, I, I can't even say it because it's X-rated. He was a urologist. <laughs> and he told me about a patient who didn't, well, I can't even say it on the, yeah, because I, let's, but, let's but not. he told me a story that was hilarious about something he had to do in the field of urology. Gotcha. Um, it was really quite extraordinary, but he, he's great. He's, he's got, he's a wonderful guy. But, so yeah, he's a great guy. And he's also a Chicago icon. I mean, he was like the head of the public health department. Mm -hmm. And Terry is one of the people who encouraged me to start my own radio show. So like I've met Terry when I was a medical student. So I mean, this is like 20 years ago. And I, I've been looking up to Terry every day since then. That is so cool. Um, and, and, and able to inf influence any of your peers at work? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, with the medical students and the residents, uh, not only at my institution, but also nationwide, there's a lot of people reaching out to me about ways we can work together for community education. So I have the med medical students down in the community giving talks and lectures. Um, as far as my peers, uh, one of my, uh, we started a fatty liver clinic at the University of Chicago. So I work with uh, the hepatologist on the fatty liver clinic. And uh, there's also another chef, uh, Allison Crawford. So University of Chicago, one of my colleagues, Dr. Allison Crawford is a chef and she does a lot of good lifestyle medicine. And we all are trying to work together to kind of change the way we do medicine. And I feel like medicine, there's a time and place for pills, but we have to focus on food and exercise and lifestyle. And I feel like uh, those aspects were definitely underrepresented in terms of uh, the way we treat patients, but also our education. And that needs to change, but it is changing. We're moving yeah. in the right direction. Thanks to young doctors like you, plants before pills. Look, and you, sometimes you need both. Yep. You, definitely need, uh, you definitely need plants. <laughs> hey, how's the hot dog guy doing? Do you, are you still in touch with him? Uh, so, you know, he's a veteran, so he can only go to the VA hospital. Uh, so when I finished my residency, I passed, uh, I passed him on to a, a, another intern who took care of him. But he was doing really, really good. So last time I, I checked, he uh, started exercising and he was doing biking and uh, he was really trying to get other vets to exercise. So I remember seeing him at the VA cafeteria, to be exact. And I, I saw him in the cafeteria. So this guy had his, his biker suit on and everything. And he's at the VA talking to other VA, other Vietnam veterans about what he's been doing with his life. So you know, last I checked, he seemed to be an ambassador for, for healthy eating. See if you can yeah. find him because he'd be a great guest for me or even on your radio show. Wouldn't you love a follow-up on that guy? I, I would love a follow-up. I can see if I could track him down. I gotta, I, there's, there's probably ways I could figure it out. But, uh, oh, you know, one of, one of a couple of my VA patients, I mean, the good thing about working and living in Chicago, I still run across a lot of my patients. I mean, even just the other day, I was at the local grocery store and, you know, I, I, I'm in the, the vegetable section and like one of my patients pops in like, hey, I need an appointment. And I'm like, oh, OK, we'll, we'll give you a call. Um, and another one of my patients sees me like, hey, you know, this was I actually take care of a, a family member. 
and you know they see me so i i come across a lot of my patients so i'm sure we'll cross paths sooner or later that is great well i hope everyone will sign up to be on my mailing list so that when the gi health summit airs november 14th you can see both of dr mcdonald's interview he did a regular interview where he talked and he did a cooking demo that's going to knock your socks off so i've posted for his book on amazon please check that out maybe even buy it and check out his blog, subscribe to it. And uh, we hope to have him back soon. So thank you so much for being here. As always, I just really love talking to you. I get so inspired because your, 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 your passion for everything you do, whether it's working at McDonald's or being Dr. McDonald or being chef Dr. McDonald, it's just contagious. Oh, I appreciate that. And vice versa. It's always yeah. good coming on the show and, 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 and seeing your big smile. It makes me smile. That's the best part of my job is getting to meet people like you and, uh, and talking to people like you, even though I can't see you guys. I thank you so much for being here and watching another show. Please come back tomorrow. We have another very important guest. Dr. Christy Funk is talking about how to prevent breast cancer. And even if you're a guy, you want to watch because men have breasts and I actually have a male friend with breast cancer. Thanks again, Dr. McDonald. Have a great weekend. All right. Take care.